Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors and you, our listeners, ask the questions. I'm Tavi Kowalczuk, and Labor Day has passed us by, which means that it's the unofficial start to fall. The other thing it means is that there are a few books that we're looking forward to reading that are coming out in the next few months. One of them that I'm specifically looking forward to reading is The Talented Miss Farwell by Emily Gray Tedrow. It's about a con artist who embezzles money from her town and uses it to fund a high-rolling art collecting scheme. You can't stop turning the pages, and I'm really excited for this to come out. Frontier Follies by Reed Drummond is a book of essays all about her humorous life living on the ranch. If you are a fan of her show, The Pioneer Woman Cooks, you will absolutely love this collection of essays. And the last book is not a new book, but I haven't read it yet. So for me, I'm going to read it in the fall. It's The Empire of Gold by S.A. Chakraborty. It's the last book in the Day of Abad trilogy. And I still loved our conversation from when we had her on the podcast weeks and weeks and weeks ago. So I can't wait to read those books this fall. Yeah, I'm Eliza Rosenberry. I also can't wait to read Empire of Gold. I also haven't read Kingdom of Copper. That's the second book in the trilogy. So I do need to read some more fantasy for the end of the year. I'm also really excited to read. There's a new thriller that just came out called When No One Is Watching by Alyssa Cole. And she's described it as a gentrification thriller. So it's like it's set in Brooklyn, New York, and it's about race And it's sort of rear window meets the movie Get Out. Anyway, I'm really, really excited to read it. And I really want to read The Talented Miss Farwell as well. I love The Talented Mr. Ripley. And I think it's sort of like, sort of captures the same energy. On today's show, a peasant war orphan learns a spot in the country's most prestigious military academy, and it changes her life forever. For this week's episode, we read The Poppy War, the first book in a beloved fantasy trilogy. And later in the show, we'll be speaking with the award-winning author, R.F. Kuang. This episode, we also wanted to share a new review of the podcast, which was posted on Apple Podcasts by a user called Village Crone, which I love. And it's a five-star review And it says, love you, love books. I have spent this difficult time sewing masks and listening to podcasts. Attending Book Club Girls Night Out was one of my favorite things. I can't wait to go to it again. Thank you for this podcast. It's top of my list. Thank you so much, Village Crone, for this review of the podcast. And I've been attending a lot of the virtual Book Club Girl Night Out events also in quarantine. It's been such a bright spot. And we're happy the podcast is also keeping you company. I absolutely love that review. And I have to say, one of my favorite book club girl moments was when I got to interview Susan Wiggs during the book club girl wine and words event. And the wine company sent me two bottles of wine for free because I was hosting the event. Wow. So if you don't already subscribe to the book club girl Facebook group, subscribe because that's where we post all the info about all of these awesome events. And now we present to you... The Poppy War Abridged. Rin is a war orphan and doesn't remember who her parents were or where she comes from. But she knows where she's going, Sinigard, the most elite military academy in Nikon. Rin knows she has the potential to achieve greatness, but her new classmates and some of her teachers look down on her because of her humble background, so she must work extra hard to prove them wrong. 
During the course of her studies, Rin realizes she has a power within her that she doesn't quite understand. She begins training with the most unconventional teacher and taps into the power of ancient shamans, a spiritual practice of calling the gods that has been largely forgotten in favor of mainstream military training. When Nikan goes to war, Rin witnesses great destruction and violence. She is called into an elite squad of others who can call the gods and must learn to harness that power in order to protect herself and her friends. But this power is as dangerous and destructive as it is tempting. Eliza, what did you think of this very unique book? I loved The Poppy War. It was so good. And I don't read a ton of fantasy I find that it just takes me a really long time to read and I sort of lose track in between books. So this was so fun and I really can't wait to read the second book in the series. It's just so fresh and interesting and well done. Oh my God. I read this book as fast as I could. I totally agree with you. I loved it. I did not want it to end. And I'm so glad it's a trilogy. There's two more books. Yeah, And I found Rin, who's the protagonist, to be such a complex character. It's sort of not the traditional hero's journey. It's a little bit different. And obviously with the first book, we're just partway through her journey, but her struggles with like about power and guilt um, are just really, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, you speak about her hero's journey being a little bit unusual, but I did recognize some of the tropes of the fantasy genre. The poor orphan, secret powers, thrust into a role that they're not ready for. These are, you know, themes that I recognize from other fantasy novels, but I completely enjoyed them and did not mind that she was going, hearkening back to other great fantasy novels. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously the trope of going to school, in this case, it's like a military academy, but she's sort of learning this like mythical power along with it. Uh, You know, the sort of trope of going to this like magical school is obviously something that It's definitely not Hogwarts, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And I loved the supporting cast of characters as well. When she gets to school, she has sort of an arch nemesis, Neza, who's like, he comes from this like prestigious family and his father Mm -hmm. is like, you know, high up in the government. And so they're just sort of opposites. And she makes like one good friend at school named Kite. He's also from like a fancy family, but he's really nerdy. And so they sort of bond over their shared passion Mm -hmm. for like the history. And then her teacher, who you mentioned in the abridged, Zhang, is sort of this like kooky guy who skips class and is sort of not taken very seriously. But it turns out he is like very wise. And Altan, who's a he's older than her in school and everyone sort of looks up to him. He's really powerful and successful in school. And then later he becomes her commander when they go to war. Yeah. It's fascinating the way all the characters end up interlocking as the novel progresses. Speaking of interlocking, you know, one thing I think it's really original about this novel is that R.F. Kuang adapts the history of China and Japan to this fantasy world. So in her note at the end of the book, she actually refers back to real history texts for the history of China that informed, you know, the the battle scenes in the novel. I thought it was extremely engaging and creative, and it definitely piqued my interest about the history of China. And it dovetails really nicely with these issues of what's more important, self or country, 
power mm-hmm. or enlightenment. Yeah. These are sort of themes that cu- keep coming up for Rin and for her classmates. I cannot wait to talk with her about this book. Well, let's toast quickly and get it over so we can get <laughs> R.F. Kuang on the line. Great. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Quick reminder, we love to hear from our listeners, especially now that we're all working from home. You can join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can stay connected with other book lovers and pose your own questions to the authors who appear on our show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash The Book Club Girls. And stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive sample from the audiobook of The Poppy War. Today, we're joined by R.F. Kuang, author of The Poppy War. Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast. We're so glad that you're here. Hi, thanks for having me. So we wanted to start off by talking about how much of the book is based on real Chinese history, which is a subject that you have studied extensively. So could you share a little bit about how your academic background informed writing this novel? Sure. So the Poppy War always kind of confuses people because people who are really familiar with the history um, don't know what time period it's supposed to be in. So uh, thematically and structurally, the book is uh, strongly inspired by events of the mid-20th century in China. So namely the Chinese Civil War, the Second Sino-Japanese War, which um, happened at the same time as World War II across the rest of the world, and then the continuation of the Chinese Civil War after that, um, and then the struggle of Mao and his communist movement against Western imperialism for the decades thereafter are like the backbone of the trilogy. Um, so that was the ideological stuff that I was working from. But when I started drafting The Poppy War, I did not want to write tank battles and air warfare. And, you know, like I thought writing battles between like fighter jets would be very difficult um, and require way too much. <laughs> research not to mention boring (laughs) okay so that's what i think like i think that modern (laughs) warfare takes kind of like the individual heroism out of the picture and it's much easier to tell an epic tale to fit the the normal plot structure of epic fantasy if you reduce warfare down to the military technology Mm. level of something like 13th century china the song dynasty um so i chose to set it in the song dynasty which is not my period of expertise so i got one of those lovely gigantic Cambridge volumes of like the the you know collected history of China that has like a section on the economy, transportation, like clothing, like court <laughs> rituals, etc. So I treated the Song Dynasty as my world building scaffold, but that made things easier because then I could you know have them have sword fights and like martial arts battles. And like the thing about modern warfare is that the turn of the battle never comes down to the the valor or fighting skill of one particular person, but that. That doesn't really suit your needs for a fantasy narrative, right? Like you need your main character to be super important. Um, so, mm-hmm. so that's why you brought it back about a, a thousand years. I love that. I love rooting for the underdog in life and also as a reader. And Rin, I think, is very much an underdog, especially in the earlier parts of the novel. How do you think that this sort of underdog status affects the trajectory of Rin's years at the Academy and then in war? 
I mean, her origin story at the Academy is important, especially for where the rest of the trilogy takes her, uh, because she sees all the marginalizations and power hierarchies that the rest of her classmates find invisible because they are born at the top of Nikara society, right? They're wealthy, they are pale-skinned, they have spent their whole lives knowing that they were destined for leadership and greatness, and she comes from none of that, so she's a girl, and there are only like three girls at this school. It's a deeply sexist, patriarchal society. Um, so she's understanding things. Uh, so so one thing I tried to make clear was that even though you can have women in positions of power, like you have like isolated examples of women empresses in China or women generals or, or women pirate queens, right? Like those specific um, exceptions don't undermine or disprove an entire like system of patriarchy. So so even though Rin's at Synagard and the headmistress is a woman and the person in charge of running the nation is an empress and all of the most influential people in her life so far have all been women, like that doesn't rescue any of them from patriarchy. So it's important that she's understanding that. She also is understanding that she's poor, she's from the South, she's dark-skinned, and she is discriminated against at every turn because of this, uh, which is something that her classmates don't even think about. So that forms the basis of her political allegiances in at the end of the book and, and throughout the next two books. Um, but we're not supposed to talk about spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the power dynamics at play between Rin and her classmates when it comes to, you know, sort of their backgrounds and their identities. Early on in the book, Rin's friend Katai tells her that power dictates acceptability. And nearly every character in the book, to my eye, is seeking power, whether that's through sort of mastery of academics or martial arts or sort of playing the political games. How does this sort of constant pursuit of power shape the book? And also, sort of a side question, do you think there's a character in the Poppy War who's not seeking power? Hmm. I think the only answer to the second question, is there anyone who's not seeking power, is in fact Kitai. He's not really motivated by wanting to come out on top. He's just Rin's best friend. Like, he's he's so nice. He's so sweet. He's a cinnamon roll and my favorite character to write. And he really is just like a naturally curious person who wants to understand the secrets of the universe. And he's also intensely loyal. So he is her moral compass. He's her best balancing other half. Um, and, and that has interesting implications as their bond goes stronger over the next two books. As for the question of what this constant struggle for power does to the narrative itself, I mean, the, the whole trilogy is operating from a really pessimistic, realist perspective of international relations, right? Like, the only thing that matters is power. Like, states will do anything to attain it and other things. Like, there is no theory of, like, liberal institutionalism. There is no theory of constructive peace. It is simply who has the power to come out on top. Like, that famous quote, war is not a question of who's right, war determines who remains. So everything is very base and comes down to to power and really to violence. And this brings me back to what Franz Fanon writes about in The Wretched of the Earth, which is kind of a foundational text on colonialism and violent resistance, where he argues that for the colonizer in power, for people who are on top, for the hegemon, right? Like there is no nonviolent, peaceful demand for your rights from the perspective of the colonized. There is no sitting down at the table and asking politely 
directly, hey, like, would you guys be cool with not oppressing us? Because there is no world in which it is rational for the colonizer or indeed the invader, in, in which case, like in book one, this is the fantasy analog of imperial Japan. Like, they have no reason to undercut their self-interest. So really the only recourse for the colonized is violent resistance, and that means power in in the form of really chaotic, unpredictable, and, and dangerous gods. This sort of leads into, I think your answer to the previous question as well as this one leads into something that, you know, Eliza and I were both talking about earlier, which is throughout Rin's life, she is often pigeonholed as less than desirable. And you mentioned some of the ways. She's a war orphan. She's a southerner. She's poor. She has darker skin. And then even when she sort of comes into her quote unquote own power as a soldier with shamanic powers, she's also kind of you know, marginalized. She gets banished from her martial arts class by a racist classes teacher. Her peers underestimate her. Why is it important to shine a light on the opposite of this experience, on the entitlement in your novel? I just don't think that novels written from the perspective of people who are entitled are that interesting. She has obstacles because she's at the bottom rung of society. She has things to fight against and she has rage, and I mean righteous rage, well-justified rage, and a system to rail against precisely because it is the system that has produced all of the worst things in her life. I also think it's interesting that you mentioned that she's not desirable, and in fact she's never described as pretty and at no point in the books does she become pretty and this was also important because I'm just not that interested in writing a character who's concerned with her own vanity and has to either come to terms with the fact that she's not pretty or or becomes pretty or has love interests despite the fact that she personally doesn't think she's that pretty even though she has like wayfish physique and like long brown hair <laughs> and doe-like eyes mm-hmm. I mean I think it's so annoying in YA novels especially when you get this protagonist and it's like it's important that she's humble right and that she doesn't think too much of herself so she personally doesn't think she's beautiful but the world keeps telling her that she's beautiful and her love interests (laughs) keep telling her that she is highly sexually desired and Rin is not particularly upset that she's not beautiful she doesn't think about it twice the only time it passes her mind is when she's like I'm not that pretty so I'm not going to get a very advantageous marriage match like I'm I'm frankly just not that desirable on the market and then after that she doesn't think twice about it because there's so many other things that are important to her, like testing into this military academy, becoming a good soldier, and then fighting for her life. So she's not sexually desirable at any point during the trilogy, and and that's fine, and no one cares. And you also reminded me of the scene in the book where she's on her way to the military academy, and she just hacks off her braid, and she basically says, this is my one good quality, and she doesn't even care. She's like, whatever, it's in my way. And, you know, and also when she takes a potion that makes her sterile, she clearly is like not interested in any of her sort of feminine attributes. Yeah, well, I'd like to unpack that scene because I think it's been read and misread in a lot of different ways by a lot of people. I think that what nobody really takes away from that scene is, yes, it is significant that she doesn't find her ability to have children an integral core part of her. But this is really a scene about like child abuse, right? Like she's 
very young when she makes this decision. She's at an academy that has, you know, no support for reproductive health and nobody's sitting there talking to her about other options to make her period more bearable. Nobody's saying that this is a life-changing decision that you're like you you barely have a prefrontal cortex like you should not be making this decision but instead all of the adults around her people who are supposed to be responsible for her safety for her well-being for for bringing her up as like a flourishing student are instead telling her that in order to stay here in order not to be expelled and live a horrible miserable life back in the town where you came from you need to make this decision now and it's horrible that she's forced to choose and she does make a choice and she does find it empowering and she doesn't regret it but that should never have been a choice presented to her in the first place and that is actually what i wish people would take from that scene more than like yay girl power no babies absolutely so rin's teacher jiang who we love says to her deep in your subconscious mind you know the truth of things and you know I have some thoughts, but I really want to hear what you have to say. What truths are revealed in the Poppy War? So the cosmology of the Poppy War, at least from the perspective of the shamans, is this Taoist perspective of the world as wholly interconnected. Um, So it's really a response to this like Western materialist um, Cartesian separation of mind and body as the world as this fixed material reality that we live in and can manipulate as opposed to more of a shared dream of creation that we're all interconnected connected with. But I think the metaphor that he uses later is that the world is like a giant painting and the gods and the the colors are swirling and changing all the time and the gods hold the brushes and to call on the god is to you know, temporarily for for a brief smidgen of the totality of human history to to control the direction of, of that color. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, R.F. Kwong answers more questions, and later in the show, we ask about her literary white whale. Stick around. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by Empire of Gold by S.A. Chakraborty. This is the thrilling conclusion to the Day of Abad trilogy, which began with City of Brass and continued with Kingdom of Copper. Available now wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show. This episode, we're speaking with R.F. Kuang, author of The Poppy War. Conventional wisdom or sort of common knowledge is often challenged in The Poppy War, like within the world, where Rin learns the history that she thought that she knew is wrong or is sort of asked to consider a different perspective on a historical event. And so as a historian or someone who's, I don't know if you consider yourself a historian, but as someone who studies history, is that a phenomenon that you experience in your work? And also, you know, sort of relatedly, like, why did you want to include that in the novel? So I thought I was going to be a war historian, uh, but I'm less interested in the archives of like what general wrote what letter to make what command on like what day. Like those nitty gritty details actually really bore me. Um, I was more interested in the narratives that people tell about what happened and the ways that traumas like the Nanjing Massacre, for example, are commemorated and politicized and and warped or changed or celebrated differently in popular memory. Um, because history is just story. And that's why we have historiography, right? Like that 
impulse by the the ruling regime to determine their version of history and tell people things happened in this way is is something that's determined by the president, right? Like the the historical narrative that serves you depends on the political realities of the current day and not what actually happened. Um, so people have different events of different like recent histories and different legends um, because of what serves them. So there are so many examples of this in the Poppy War trilogy where people tell different versions of myths based on what suits them and their worldview the best. It's so funny that leads right into my question that I wanted to ask about the history of the Spearly people. It is so compelling the way that you present it in the book, and it captures the imagination of the book's characters as well. As you said, they debate the truth of the Spearly genocide. What happened? They debate the truth of Alton and, you know, who's the last remaining Spearly, and he inspires wonder and admiration. Is there an analog for the Spearly people in our world, who would that be for the Spearleys? So there is no one nation or ethnic group that is as perfect of a historical analog um, to Spear as as Nikon is to China and the Federation of Mukan is to Japan. So much more of that is originally imagined. Um, so I hesitate to pin it too closely to any one country. But the treatment of the Spearleys and also of the hinterlanders who who come into greater focus in the next books are meant to demonstrate, like, even though Nikon is a country that is being oppressed in this book, and even though, like, historically China was oppressed by Western powers and by Japan for much of its painful history, that doesn't change the fact that it is still an empire. It is still a regional hegemon, right? Like, the Chinese exercise power in the way that they accuse Western powers of exercising it to people on their borders, on the fringes, to minority ethnic groups within China's borders itself. So it's possible for a country both to be the victim of empire and to be an empire, and that's what Nikon does to Spear. A few times throughout the Poppy War, Rin says or sort of thinks that she wants to be a good soldier, even as the definition of what that is sort of evolves for her. Do you think it's something she achieves at any point? Absolutely not. She's a really bad soldier. She's bad at taking orders. Like, she doesn't listen. She, like, doesn't... (laughs) She's far too independently minded and I think dumb to be a properly good uh, competent soldier Um, but the reason why she says that is because I mean she's frankly brainwashed and this is very common for young people who are seeking stability or seeking anything to cling to and doesn't have anywhere else to go so she pours all of her loyalty, all of her efforts, like her entire heart into this one cause that she thinks she believes in, even though she hasn't really interrogated the reasons why it's so important to her. I mean, why does she have such such fervent patriotism or, or nationalist loyalty to this country that has treated her so badly at every turn? So The Poppy War is the first book in the trilogy. The second book, The Dragon Republic is out now, and we are all anticipating the final book, which is The Burning God, out in a few months. For readers of the trilogy, is there anything you can tell us about The Burning God that won't be a spoiler? 
I've been dropping so many spoilers, like, in every interview <laughs> and on, like, Twitter, like, every other day. But I think The Burning God will be really satisfying. And the reason why is because it finally answers the ideological question that's been set up. And kind of, like, really, I've been beating readers over the head with a bat with through the first and two books, which is really, like, the trilogy is asking the question of do the violent communist uprisings of the mid-20th century, post-World War II, in response to Western imperialism justify their violent excesses um, because of what they're fighting against. I do want to open up spaces for alternative paths for China, because without being able to imagine alternate realities, I think that like current political realities seem path-dependent and inevitable, and I don't think that's the case. Okay, so our final question is the question that we ask every author who appears on the podcast, which is, what is your literary white whale, a book that you've always intended to read, or one that you've picked up and just have never finished? Oh my goodness. Well, I have a very specific, like, COVID white whale, and I even tweeted about it, like, the moment we went into lockdown, I was like, oh, now that we have so much time, I'm going to finally read 100 Years of Solitude. It's so fitting, and I am, in fact, in solitude. Um, (laughs) But somehow, like, not being around other people and not having as many, like, places to go to does not, in fact, increase my ability to pay attention to things or or the hours in the day in which I have free time to read. Um, So I haven't even picked it up. Like, I haven't even opened (laughs) it to the first page. And I keep telling myself, I am going to read this. It's a literary masterpiece. Like, you know, like I have to understand this magical realist tradition in which it's coming from, but I just have not. Well, we are so grateful that you came on the podcast. Thank you so much. We loved this book. Can't wait to read the next one. Can't wait to read the last in the trilogy. And thank you so, so much. Thank you, Rebecca. This was so fascinating. Really loved having you. Thanks so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. That was R.F. Kuang, whose book, The Poppy War and the sequel, The Dragon Republic, are both out now. The third and final book in the trilogy is The Burning God, which will be published in November 2020. To find out more about Rebecca's books and how to buy them, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and leave a review. Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast, tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. You'll hear from us again in two weeks, where we'll be speaking with Elizabeth Thomas, author of one of the most exciting debut thrillers of the year, Catherine House. You can stay in touch with us between episodes on Instagram. Find us at Tavia Reads at Eliza is reading and at book club girl. You can join in on our conversations too. We are going to sit down with the great Joe Hill, one of my and Tavia's favorites. If you have questions for Joe about his most recent book, Full Throttle, post them in the comments on our book club girls, Facebook group, or call us at 212-207-7336. You can also send us an email, the girls at bookclubgirl.com. We'd really love to hear from you. And if your question gets asked on the show, a reminder that we send you a free book. Before we go, a big thank you to Charles de Montebello, who produced today's episode, and to Rebecca Kwong for setting up a microphone from home. Until next time, I'm Tavia. And I'm Eliza. Happy reading. Nadja met Rin's eyes and then wrenched his sword out of the soldier's back. With his other hand, he flung a spare weapon at her. She pulled it from the air. 
Her fingers closed with familiarity around the hilt. A wave of relief shot through her. She had a weapon. Thanks, she said. On your left, he responded. Without thinking, they sank into a formation, back to back, fighting while covering each other's blind spots. They made a startlingly good team. Rin covered for Najah's overstretched attacks. Najah guarded Rin's lower corners. They were each intimately familiar with the other's weaknesses. Rin knew Najah was slow to bring his guard back up after missed blows. Najah parried from above while Rin ducked in low for close quarters attacks. It wasn't as if she could read his mind. She had simply spent so much time observing him that she knew exactly how he was going to attack. They were like a well-oiled machine. They were a spontaneously coordinated dance. They weren't two parts of a whole, not quite, but they came close. If they hadn't spent so much time hating each other, Rin thought, they might have trained together. Backs to each other, swords at the enemy, they fought with savage desperation. They fought better than men twice their age. They drew on each other's strengths. As long as Najah was fighting, wasn't flagging, Rin didn't feel fatigued either. Because she wasn't just fighting to keep herself alive now, she was fighting with a partner. They fought so well that they half convinced themselves they might emerge intact. The onslaught was in fact thinning. They're retreating, Najah said in disbelief. Rin's chest flooded with hope for one short, blissful moment, until she realized that Najah was wrong. The soldiers weren't backing away from them. They were making way for their general. <laughs>